In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel bids farewell to the Israelites and cautions them about the grave repercussions of disobeying God. He recounts their forefathers' past and reminds them of God's loyalty. The people admit their wrongdoings, and Samuel reassures them that following God will lead to prosperity, but turning away from Him will result in punishment. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Friday, May 12th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'd like to thank our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in all kinds of languages. You can visit them online to learn more about their translating and publishing work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us discern and divide up for Samuel chapter 12. It's the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and fourth vice president of the LCMS. Pastor Noor, welcome back to the show. Glorious morning to you, beloved brother, and saint in Christ. Good to be with you and our audience as we talk about Jesus' love and his grace, mercy to all people, especially as we swim in the word of 1 Samuel. Amen, brother. And this text is, is you know, it's full of law, but also gospel. It points to God's gracious activity amongst the people of Israel, but it's also very honest on Samuel's part about the sin of uh, them wanting a king other than Yahweh. But then we also get good news, and it's just, it's, it's actually a great chapter for us to be covering this morning. It is. Uh, this morning, as I was talking to the Queen, I was telling her that this text is a hard-hitting 15-round um, knockout, so to speak. It is a blow after blow after blow, knocking them down to the mat, and then, by the gospel, lifting them up from the mire and the mud of sin they have been swimming in for so long. It really is a mountain and peak valley, um, um, you know, chapter. It is heavy on the law, but oh, oh, the sweet gospel just oozes. And like Dr. Luther once said, we would never appreciate the gospel unless the law has done its effect on our lives. Well, amen to that, brother, and I look forward to hearing what you have to say about the text. But before we get into it, it might be a good idea for us to start our time off together in prayer. And as always, I'd like to invite you as my guest to do that. Thank you. It's, it's more than a good idea. It's salutary. So let us go to the throne of grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus, while you walked on the earth, you spoke these words. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Though we are miles apart, yet through the medium of the internet and the telephone and all other gadgets that light up and brighten our days, we come to you today knowing that you would be the one that we focus upon, the one who shows us our sin and the one 
who reminds us of the precious holy gospel that you have offered to us. Lord, what you have written has been written for our learning and instruction, calling us to repentance as you did the first Israelite, but at the same time giving us comfort and assurance and the guarantee that your word is eternal and that your promise of salvation has been procured for us through the one who is anointed, of whom Samuel speaks about. So may you hear the prayers of your people as the name of this book um, highlights. So hear us, Father, not because we are worthy, not because we deserve anything, but simply and solely for the sake of Christ, who said, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Thus, it is in his name that we ask, confident that you would hear us and that you will do what is right. Amen. Amen. Well, part of this text is actually Samuel recounting all of the things that God had done in their history leading up to this moment, but I still think it might be a good idea for us to recount ourselves a little bit of what has happened leading up to this chapter. Would you like to lay some foundation for the folks before we read any of the text? I do. Let me just take you up to Samuel chapter 8, in particularly in that portion, the Jewish leaders gathered and asked Samuel at Ramah, that's where my mom was born, and said to him, you know, your kids or your sons, to be specific in the text, do not walk like you did with us. Give us a king over us. They wanted to be like all other uh, nationalities around them, and they forgot that their God, the one who delivered them, is the true God. And uh, in verse 6, it goes like this of chapter 8. But the, this, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And now listen to verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Oh my, these are harsh words. God is speaking with voice of authority to say to Samuel, yes, you are my prophet. You are taking it personally, but you were not the one who was rejected. I was. And he said, give that to them. And if you read on later, he says, yes, I'm going to give them this king, but this king is going to take everything that belongs to them. Because there's no human entity in this world, neither a pastor or a politician or, uh, you know, whatever is going to do what God does because God is perfect and we are not. And so Samuel is still grieving what was done to the king eternal. And he is really highlighting this. He has not forgotten this. So when we come to chapter 12, boy, does he open his bags and let the law fly one after the other to remind them of the failure, which, of course, they would repent ultimately like we do, and then uh, restore us back again. So this is kind of the setting and, of course, you know, Samuel is getting old, um, and he's uh, going to pass on the helm to somebody else. 
And then he says, well, here is the king, but I want to I wanna connect the dot also with the New Testament. It is in this that remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that God uses everything for our good and for his glory. Even though this is not what God had chosen, this is not his will for the people because he wanted to be their king, and that's who he is, and he still is. And, of course, that becomes the culmination when Jesus hangs on the cross, and what do they put above him? King of the Jews. The true king dies for the people, for the sin of rebellion, rejection, and removal of his authority over them. So this is an overview as we begin to look at this holy text that the inspiration the Holy Spirit has given to us. Before we read any of it, I'd love to ask you a question that I'm sure is on the the minds of people as they hear what you're saying, and that is, if God's will is for one thing and the people's will is for the other, even though it's not for their good, and of course God will use it for their good, but why does God not just enforce his will? People might want to know, you know, if God is God, why doesn't he just, you know, say, no, you can't have a king because that's not my will? What do you think, brother? Well, I think sometimes we call it tough love. God never forces himself on people. He invites people to see him for who he really is. Who has known the mind of God, right? The Apostle Paul writes in uh, chapter 11 of Romans. Who has given him counsel? Nobody can. Why does God give um, this thing for the people, even though this is not what he has done? One thing. He knows the whole scope of things. He sees it all at one time. You and I see it from yesterday's perspective to today's and hopefully tomorrow's, but we have no vision. God does, and he always uses everything for our good, even the bad. He grants them this for the simple reason he's going to teach them to rely on his judgment, not theirs. And they will find out how terrible this idea is. And we will see that in the wickedness of the Israel's kings. The majority of the Israelites' kings were wicked and evil, whereas the Judean kings were somewhat good. We can think of David and Solomon, to say to name a few. But ultimately, the Judean king that comes out of Judah is the Lion of Zion who rose from his throne, Jesus Christ. That's the eternal king that will come out of this bad situation. Well, let's look at it. Samuel begins this section in the first five verses by starting with the defense, I suppose, of his ministry. Basically, he's not given them any reason to desire anything other than what God had provided them. We're going to read these first five verses and have our guest look at them for us, uh, starting with verse 1 of chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel... Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, 
testify against me before Yahweh and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, Yahweh is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. All right, pausing just there for a moment. Uh, Samuel lays it on the line, right? Like, what did I ever do to you? That's, that seems to be the tone. Well, you know, uh, when a pastor leaves a congregation, which I've done after 21 years, you say your farewell, right? And you want to point them to the truth. And Samuel, whose name literally means God hears, remember his calling in chapter 3 of First Samuel, where God calls him to be the mouthpiece after um, the... Eli, the prophet, died with a broken neck for disobeying the Lord, and he has walked before them roughly about 50-plus years of ministry, and he said to them, look, you have asked for a king. I wasn't happy, but I did it because God said so. Now, that king is uh, walking before you. Literally, in the Hebrew, he's walking before your face. So that is, you are seeing him. As I'm looking at the Hebrew, lefanechem, in, in the presence of your face, okay? More so than just walking ahead of you or something. That is, you are keeping your eyes on the king. And there's an intention in the Hebrew words there. They're keeping their eye on the earthly king rather than the heavenly king. And that's a big thing. It's kind of like the politicians of today. No matter who is going to be in the office, we think that's the person who's going to remedy all of the problem, whether it's Trump or Biden or DeSanta or whoever it is. None of them are going to be perfect in relation to the one true king. And so he's reminding them of this. And then he says, I want you to be a witness. And they're in the Hebrew two times the word, not only the Lord, but before his anointed. Twice that is mentioned. Well, who is the anointed one? That is the one who would come out of Mary's womb. That's the Mashiach in the Hebrew, the anointed one whom God has set before the foundation of the world to be the redeemer and restorer and causer of repentance when he comes. And so when he highlights all of this and he lays before them, okay, I have been with you all of these years. Now show me where I have done wrong in any manner. And the Apostle Paul kind of does the same things. Have I taken anyone? You know, did I take anything from anyone? Why is he doing this? Because he is saying, I have obeyed God. He's not trying to elevate himself by any means. This man is humble. He's trying to tell them, according to God's decrees and commands, I have walked humbly before you. I've never used anything for myself. He goes to the animals, the ox, the donkey, and whom have I defrauded? And then the mitzvah, the one who has been oppressed. Have I oppressed anybody for my own personal gain? And all of these things to say, 
I've never taken any of this for my own personal gain. And that's very important for us. He did not oppress anyone. He did not hurt anyone. He did not defraud. He did not take a bribe. Another word, hey, look at my hands. I am clean and innocent of anything. And they ultimately said, yes, 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 you are so right. And who, who does he give witness? He give witness to Yahweh. And says, hey, before Yahweh, I call upon you to remember who I am and what I have done. And it is so, so important for us because he is really a man after God's own heart, because he walked with God in all of the ways that God has called him to do, and he communicated that with the people. And by doing so, he said, this is the way you should be living. And he's trying to emphasize how we live as the blood bought. These words are not only for the people of Israel of that time, but they are for us as well. If we remember, who are we in the waters of baptism? How do we walk? How do we talk? How do we communicate? How do we share the love of God before Yahweh and his anointed? Because ultimately, we want, bring, we want to bring glory and honor to God himself. Samuel's also making, um, I guess, in a distinction between himself and the prophetic and judgeship that he held I guess compared to his predecessor, or at least his predecessor's sons, right? Because that's how we were introduced to Samuel, is the the priests were not exactly uh, wholesome, and they were doing things that were wrong. They were defrauding people. Samuel comes along, and of course he, he upends that. He is faithful to God where his predecessors were not. He's given them no reason. And, and it's interesting, too, that he points to... Uh, not only Yahweh, but also his anointed, which in the immediate context, I'm sure, is refer referring to King Saul. Yep, the anointed. It, there's double entendre with that. The anointed, of course, when a king was anointed, what did they do? They poured oil on his head, correct? So is Jesus, when he was anointed, he was anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we call him the Mashiach, which is the same word that is used here in the Hebrew text as the anointed one. And so it's very important, uh, Mashiacho, uh, you know, the, his anointed. And um, if you look at it clearly, it is not just uh, any anointed, but the anointed one by God. Okay. Uh, in verse 3, Hineni, uh, so I'll, I'll translate here am I, bear witness against me before Yahweh and before Mishicho, his anointed, the anointed one of Yahweh. It could apply for Saul, but it also it could apply for the one is yet to come. And that's very important for us. And he does the same things a little bit later in the same portion of Scripture right here. 
Yeah, as I look at it, though, you know, in the immediate context, it seems pretty clear that they're talking. He he says it in the con- I, I absolutely agree with you wholeheartedly that whenever we talk about the anointed, it's not hard for us to make the connection to Jesus. Correct. But then, Correct. of and course, he precedes that. He precedes that in verse two with behold, as you pointed out, the king walks before your face. Right. So you can see him. Correct. As for me, Correct. I'm old and gray and look at my son. So, you know, the fact that I have sons is I'm old. And so he's he's I think he's acknowledging also the the importance of seeing Saul, the new king, as the sort of taking on the role that he's giving up. Right. So I'm the last judge. I did nothing to oppress you. You can even ask the guy who's taking over for me. Right. So he's not taking over for me because I am some wicked person that has to be discharged of my duties. But but of course, we know uh, Samuel's prophecy that this king is going to be oppressive. He's going to do all the things that um, I didn't do before you, uh, which, of course, is going to be the punishment of their sins for wanting a king other than God. Uh, But I definitely think that, you know, instead of jumping right to Jesus, which I know it's better Bolton, right? But but I think we also have to recognize the immediate context, which is the guy who's taking over for me. The one that you're anointing that I'm I anointed already to take over, mm-hmm. um, he can even say that I didn't do any of these bad things. And that's going to be really important because, well, again, it's not that that Yahweh had done anything wrong for them to demand a king. And it really emphasizes the sin that the people have committed in wanting to reject, essentially reject not only God, but but Samuel's ministry. Very good statement and very good uh, words indeed. Uh, indeed, in the context, and I think the last time we were online, I shared the three C's that I talk about. Context is king. Culture is queen. And Christ is the center. If you remember when I shared those three C's with you the last time. And yes, indeed, it does say the Neged Mishicho, and before or against his anointed, Okay. Granted, the context speaks because he's talking about the king that he has placed over. And of course, uh, if you remember, Saul was anointed even though he did not want to be. They had to drag him into the crowd, so to speak, when he was anointed. Remember that? And so, yes, we are talking about this, but we cannot overshadow um, pointing the, um, the real anointed one, granted in the context here, he's talking about the king, but looking uh, typology to the future, the real anointed will do everything that Samuel did plus more. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Of course. We yeah. just don't want to. Yeah. We just don't want to always yeah. jump to the end. We want to make sure we're looking at the text. No, too. no, no. We want to make clear the text speaks about the truth of God's word, and that's we got to hold on to that. And I'm with you 100. Yeah. percent He's talking here about Saul, but we cannot uh, divorce that from the one who is yet to come, the real anointed. Remember, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, but in the context here, truly is he speaking of Saul? Now. We don't know if the Holy Spirit revealed to Samuel into the future. We can't. We will deal with what the text gives to us. These are the words that are written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are the words we are speaking of. You and I, if we were at the time of um, Samuel, we would only think, only think of the anointed one, which is Saul. 
granted. But we are post-resurrection saints. So everything that we look at through the First Testament is looking through the empty tomb and the risen Christ. Just the way it is. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it, because we live post-resurrection, post-victory, post-defeat of Satan, post-defeat of sin and the grave, all of these things. And yet we do need to be true to the context and the text that is before us. And he is speaking of Saul, which ultimately we know he fails miserably. You remember a little bit later, I don't want to take the... Um, thunder from whoever is going to be teaching when the kingdom is divided remember he will tear the uh, robe of Samuel and he says the kingdom has been divided and from there on trouble proceeds and continues until the eternal king shows up absolutely and I think that's the grand irony here is that he's calling to as a witness that he has not defrauded them the guy who, the now anointed one, who will go on to do all of these things, uh, in many ways defraud them, oppress them, take things away from them. You know, he says, whose ox have I taken, whose donkey have I taken, whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, uh, whom have I taken a bribe from? And then, but that's exactly what Samuel has already said, that, that a human king, long before Saul was chosen, that a human king will do to them. He'll press into service his people. He'll oppress them. He'll take money from them for taxes. He'll take their animals and make them part of, of his, uh, his work. But at the same time, what the king has been brought into is a holy ministry. So Samuel's not disappearing from the scene. He's not dying yet. We're going to see him again in the following chapters uh, doing priestly things. But what he's handing over is this leadership position that he was the judge he was the one that you would look to for leadership and now that you've wanted a king he's going to that's passing on that's transitioning out of his role of israel's leader and handing it over to the king and i don't think it's um completely unimportant that frankly you would think well the the prophet should advise the king but he and he and king saul probably don't exactly get on very well um, so there's some, I'd say there's some personal conflict there too. Let me just add, towards the end of the chapter, specifically verse 23, he says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Those are golden words. He will pray, he will instruct, and he will guide them. What precious thing to have a pastor do to his saints whom God has entrusted to care. And this is what you see here, this Samuel. He's a giant of prophets, really is, in the sense his focus is, how can I honor God and care for his little sheep? And we will certainly get there uh, eventually in our text, so we'll look at that when we get there. So, But for now, though, we should take a break. So folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Neuer and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 12. See you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me is the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota. Friends, thank you for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. Thy Strong Word airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org, or you can use the KFUO app. You can also use your favorite podcasting service. In fact, I just learned recently you can listen to KFUO on your smart speaker. Just ask it to tune in to KFUO Radio. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or anything else, really, you can send me a message at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. I'm happy to answer any of your questions or comments. In any case, I'm just so grateful that you're joining us this morning for our study of 1 Samuel chapter 12. So, Pastor, before the break, we were uh, just wrapping up the introduction to, I guess, what we, what the ESV editors anyway label Samuel's farewell address. Um, they've just all said, he said, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, and they've said, he is witness. Before we move on to what Samuel says next, is there anything else you'd like to, the people to know? I think one thing that really uh, emphasizes, at least from Samuel's perspective, where is his point of interest? Always to the Lord. He's calling upon the Lord, and he closes with the Lord, right? So his focus is not on himself. He's constantly saying the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. So the focus is not so much on Samuel, even though he's this uh, spokesperson, he's the mouthpiece of God, but he's pointing to the eternal king over and over again, as subtle as it may be, to remind them he serves the only true king, our eternal God. Excellent. Well, let us move on then to the next section. I'm going to read through verse 11, because this is a big chunk. It's worth splitting up a little bit. Here we go. And Samuel said to the people, Yahweh is our witness, who, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still, that I may plead with you before Yahweh concerning all the righteous deeds of Yahweh that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot Yahweh their God, and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to Yahweh and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken Yahweh and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. 
But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And Yahweh sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Well, that's where we're going to take a pause right at the end of verse 11. He's, he's going to keep going and talking about how then they called out for a king. But just, just to this point, it sounds like he's recalling in extremely broad brushes uh, the history of God's salvific activity for Israel. He is. He's reminding them where they came from and how God has always been the deliverer. And, you know, one of the statements I've often shared with my saints at the congregation where I've served, if we don't know where we have come from, we have no appreciation for the present or the future. And as you you study this portion, these uh, verses that you have read, Samuel begins with the mighty power of God to raise up men, a means by which he brings deliverance. So he appoints Moses and Aaron, who brings them out. He tells them that even though Jacob was taken and he was oppressed to Egypt, he has uh, uh, sent someone to deliver. And then, you know, what does he say in verse 9? You have forgotten the Lord, the God. And then what does God do? Sell them into the enemies. And then when the oppression gets so bad, they say, oh, yeah, we have a God who can. So they cry. And it's repeated all over thousands of times. And if you look at all of the First Testament, we see God's people neglecting him, falling away from him. And when they are in such a dire, then he, uh, they cry to him, oh, we have failed miserably, forgive us. And then he raises somebody to uh, come to the rescue. And you see this over and over and over again. And um, when I teach, I talk about the three F's, the three words that begin with F. In verse 9, it says, but they forgot the Lord their God. So the first F is they forgot their God. They failed to trust God, and they did not fear God. These three F's are so important. Why? Because we lose focus of who we are and whose we are. When we forget what God has done, we do not appreciate the life that we have. One of the things I've often said in the West, particularly in the United States of America, we have been so blessed financially and materially that we forget that God provides all that we need. And I just shared with my wife, we were driving around our community, and there were rummage sales everywhere we turned. I said, you know, I lived in Israel for 16 years. Never once did I see a house they had extra to sell. So when you look here about all of these rummage sales, uh, I know this is a way off base here, but please understand, we have been so richly blessed that we forget that God is the giver of all of good gifts. And how easy it is to, for us to forget who God is and what he has uh, supplied us with in the past. We fail to trust him to take care of us because we want our 401ks and retirement plans to be completely secure rather than the security in the arms of God that no one can snatch us out of. And then we do not fear him in the sense of revere him as the eternal judge. We fear more what man does for us than what God does for us. And this is 
blasphemy. And you see this right here, and then they cry out, forgive us, they repent, and God comes to the rescue, even even though he turns them over in the word that is that he sold them to. I mean, he gave them away for nothing to be oppressed and abused so that they might realize how badly they have lived. And he mentions all of the people that he put in place. God uses means, and he uses man and his lips and his mouth to raise up. And if you study the book of Judges, it's the same story. Everybody did what was right in his sight, and then they cried out to God. He brings a deliverer or a judge and the same things. And so we see this, uh, you know, a copy of what's going on in the life of these people. They have forgotten who God is. They don't fear him, and they fail to trust him. That definitely certainly seems to be that point, right? The the repetition of falling into sin, seeing the consequences of their sin, and then returning to the Lord time and again. And he ends with this, or I shouldn't say he ends because he's right in the middle of his speech, but he, he ends this sort of section by saying, uh, and Samuel, he includes Samuel, and delivers you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety— now we're going into verse 12. And when May you I stop saw— you for just a moment before sure. you go? Um, in verse 12, he says, you lived in safety. I want to connect this to the great ch- ch- chapter 10 of John, where we have the good shepherd, right? He has come to give us life to the fullest. But in verses 27 and 29, he says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. And then he repeats that. In verse 29, about his father, nobody was natural. So we have the security, not in the world, not in the king that we have, but in the one true king, Christ Jesus. Please continue with verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when Yahweh your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen— For whom you have asked, behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. If you will fear Yahweh and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of Yahweh, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow Yahweh your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rebel against the commandments of Yahweh, then the hand of Yahweh will be against you and your king. Now therefore... Stand still and see this great thing that Yahweh will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon Yahweh that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know that, pardon, you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of Yahweh in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon Yahweh, and Yahweh sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared Yahweh. And Samuel. So take us through this text. We see here where he says, okay, listen, now you, there was relatively, the relative peace and security, but you know, no, no, you wanted a king. You wanted a king like the people around you. And uh, so there's your king. You, you know, Samuel didn't want to give them a king. Uh, God wanted to be their king. And Saul didn't want to be king. <laughs> but now all these things have come together. So the Lord says, hey, fine, this is the situation, but still, if you continue to follow me, 
then things will be fine. But then I think we get a little preview of what's going to happen next. Take us through it, brother. Well, first, let me let me thank you for in the English ESV, they have the Lord capitalized Lord. But I thank you for being using the Yahweh because that's what it is in the Hebrew. So that's the first thing. And I appreciate you making the distinction between that um, English word and the Hebrew word using Yahweh, pointing to the eternal God. Secondly, remember Samuel is hurt deeply wounded and he's not willing to let go of the sin that they have brought upon themselves he says you are the cause of all of this because you turned away from god had you continued to walk with god as god was your king and is your king you would not be in this mess but because you have done this you disobeyed me you have disobeyed god and you rebelled against his commandments Now you have this king, and what do you have? Nothing but trouble, because no man on earth can give comfort or security or peace. And of course, as you look further into the book of Samuel, you see how terribly Saul becomes as a king, because he literally takes the people's land and property and ox and donkey, everything that Samuel did not do. Ironically, both of them begin with the same letter in the Hebrew as well as in the English. But as you look at this, he's constantly reminding them of what they have done. Why is he doing this? That's the question. What's the question behind the question was Dr. Uh, Price the third who is sainted now he would always ask us in the class what's the question behind the question so why is samuel hampering this above this king that you have asked for he's not happy with it to remind them that they have rejected the lord they have turned away from him they dishonored him and disobeyed him and what's the purpose of all of that to call them to repentance And what were the opening words of Jesus when he began his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. How important for us to acknowledge our sinfulness before God and to repent of the sin of thought, word, and deed. And this is what you have right here. And so he's reminding them uh, to look to the things that they have done, but never forget the God who delivers. And in verse 17, uh, he tells them what he's going to do. And why does he do that? He wants to show them that this Yahweh, the true king, can do more than any man. It was harvest time. The wheat has been blossomed. And one of the things that you don't want to have is heavy rain and thunder on wheat just before you harvest it. But he demonstrates that God, the true king, the eternal author of life, can do anything. And when you look at this, they are terrified at what they have seen. And notice the final word of verse 18. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the three F's I talked about, we don't fear God, we forget God, and we fail God. And you see it right here, they greatly feared. It was a driven fear rather than 
as Luther does so very well in the Catechism, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's what we ought to be doing, and this is what these people should have done, but they have not, and they have failed. And now fear is driven out of the power and the thunder that God sends forward upon the land. And so they are realizing, hey, this is real. This God can toast us in a heartbeat if he wants to. And we see this so plainly when Samuel says, I'm going to show you the power of God at work. And he does so. One question I have, though, is why are th- why is this thunder and lightning something that they identify with God's power? Is there something about the the situation that makes them think, okay, this thunder and lightning is from God, as opposed to, well, then this is just thunder and lightning? You you get what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I realize in my country where they grew up, which is where I grew up in Israel. You have no rain in the summertime, absolutely none. So when the time for the harvest, you are looking for the bumper crop, like we would say in the English language. You want your crops for security. And by demonstrating that God can destroy any earthly security that we have, that brings fear to them because now that this crop is going to be ruined, they have nothing to be secured. And remember what Jesus said, do not put your trust in anything except that which is in heaven, because in this world, moth and rust and thieves will come and destroy. All the money that we have, all the security we have can be taken away from us in a heartbeat. This is why the purpose of what he is showing, the power of God, that he can do anything he desires, he can put to death and he can raise to life. And by pointing them to the crops that were about to be harvested and to be put in their granaries to say, hey, you don't have any security here. And they ultimately realize, hey, we ought not to be depending on these things, but rather on the one who controls nature, human life, and every event in life. Sounds good. Let's keep on going then. I'm going to read verses 19 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. Here we go. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to Yahweh your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following Yahweh, but serve Yahweh with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For Yahweh will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased Yahweh to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against Yahweh by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear Yahweh and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So I suppose it ends on a little bit of law there, as we might say in our common Lutheran parlance, but but for good reason. He's telling them that good things are to follow if they continue to follow after the Lord. But 
I, I think what stands out here to me mostly is that once again, they have heard the law from, from God's spokesman, Samuel, and they repent of their sins. They want him and Yahweh not to abandon them. And of course, the promise is, no, of course he won't. Not because you're not sinners, but because of his name, because he's faithful. Um, this is a section where it's really law and gospel clearly evident. You know, if you want to use the third use of the law in verse 25. But let's begin just looking at these verses. In verse 19, and this is amazing to me, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servant rather than they are praying to Yahweh. Okay, which is wonderful. People ask me all the time as pastor, pastor, pray for me, which I do. But I think they have the capacity now that the curtain of the temple has been opened. We have access to our Father at all times for the sake of Jesus, just like they did then, even though they went there. And what do they pray for? Remember, they are fearful. They had witnessed the thunder and the lightning and the rain so that we may not die. And then they acknowledge, for we have added to all our sins this evil. What's the evil? By removing the true king and replacing it with a man king. So this is the acknowledgement. And uh, remember what uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So they acknowledge their sin, they're adamant about it, they've done wickedness, and so And here it comes. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. If you go to, um, let's see, I think it's uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12, where uh, Nathan, the prophet, comes to King David and say, hey, you are the man. And David said, I have sinned, and immediately... Uh, Nathan said, but your sins have been taken care of. God is a gracious and merciful and compassionate God. He does not hold his anger forever. And so he says, don't be afraid. However, God will desire you to walk before him. And notice the emphasis in verse 20 at the end. But serve the Lord with all your heart. It is the epitome of all that we do, that our hearts would be pure and that we would walk humbly before God. And notice in verse 1, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And he's reminding them of Baal and the Asherah. Any other deity out there will not help you. All the stones that you worship, all the trees that you worship, every entity that you worship are nothing. And in Psalm 115, uh, we are told they have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have mouth, but they cannot speak. They have hands, but they don't move. And so any of these deities are impersonal. They have no concept of what God can do. And so he's saying to them, hey, people, look closely. And here comes the gospel. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And if you look 
at Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, the word that is used there is sekulah. That is God's treasured possession. Who is the treasured possession? Excuse me. That is Israel. There's no greater treasure in all of the world for God than the people of Israel, his people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, I have chosen you from among all the people to be my people, and I will be your God. And we have the same statement spoken of Revelation 21. He will dwell among us, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. So the image that we are the recipients of God's grace, the sweet gospel God will not forsake us or abandon us. Why? Because of who he is, for his name's sake. And that name means everything. He is Yahweh who loves us in spite of us. He will never abandon us, forsake us, but always begs us. He is the God who runs after his whoring wife, his church, that she may be right and pure and holy. And this is what we have and then he continues on, I will not stop praying for you. And what a blessed thing to know that this prophet is praying that God would guide these people in the ways of truth. And that's the great blessing for me as a pastor to pray for my saints and the great joy that I hear when the saints say to me, Pastor, we are praying for you. And what a joy there is to hear. And indeed, yes, he does end on the law. Uh, you know, don't do all of these things, otherwise you're going to be swept. Just a reminder to say this, the gospel is here, but remember who you are and whose you are in this way. Live perfectly before him. Do what is right. Everything will be fine. But if you do the bad things, guess what? You and the king will be wiped out. And ultimately they do. And ultimately now we're going to push forward to the eternal truth where the king comes in, the just king who will do everything right for the sins of the past and the sins of the future and ultimately is paid for by his crimson blood. And this is what you have right here. Well, thank you so much, brother, for being on the show. I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Nabil Noor, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Hartford, South Dakota, and fourth vice president of the LCMS. Once again, thanks for being on the show. I look forward to having you back. Thank you, dear brother. God's blessings to you and to all of the saints who eavesdropped on our conversations today. Uh, Sounds good. Come Monday, folks, we're going to start out our week of study with 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul faces a crisis as the Philistine army amasses to attack Israel. Samuel instructs Saul to wait for him to sacrifice sacrifices to God before going into battle, but Saul's impatience grows and he offers the sacrifices himself. This angers God but you'll have to join us to find out what happens next. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.